welcome to Wise GP podcast. My name is Joanna Riley. I'm a GP and an intern on the Wise GP project. The Wise GP podcast aims to be a series of conversations about the art and science of primary care medicine, research, and GP scholarship in action. Although we say GPs, I hope it will be of interest to anyone working in the wider primary care team or who has an interest in primary care. Today I'm talking to Stuart Mercer, who's a GP and a professor of multimorbidity and primary care medicine at the University of Edinburgh. Stuart's research has been about Stuart's research has been about health inequalities, the inverse care law, and some of the challenges of providing primary care in deprived areas in Scotland. Stuart, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Hello and welcome to Wise GP Podcast. I'm Joanna Riley, a GP and intern on the Wise GP Project. Wise GP podcast is where we have conversations about GP scholarship, research, and the art and science of primary care medicine. We see GP, but we hope we will. It will be of interest to anyone who works in the primary care team or who has an interest in primary care. Today, I'm talking to Stuart Mercer, who's a professor of primary care and multimorbidity at Edinburgh University, and whose research has been about the inverse care law multimorbidity and care in areas of deprivation in Scotland. Hello Stuart, thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast today. Hi, hi, well thanks for asking me, Uh, delighted to help. So Stuart, could you tell us a little bit of background about yourself? What brought you into general practice and what made you interested in some of the research that you've pursued? Well I I came into medicine as a kind of second career, so I was a a biochemist working in universities, and um, so that was that was kind of um, academic work, basic science. But I'd, I'd always wanted to do medicine, so I went back and did it as a as a mature student. And I didn't I, I didn't initially think I'd be a GP. I, I just gravitated towards it. But I always had an inkling that I'd try to combine clinical work with with uh, research because. Because I really enjoyed it, but the sort of research I ended up doing is totally different from, of course, what I originally did. So, so it was, yeah, so it was a bit of a circuitous route. I mean, I think I like general practice. I mean, one of the main reasons is because you take off your white coat, you can be much more yourself, and you see people much more as they actually are than in hospital. And in terms of deprivation and health inequalities, again. I was kind of drawn to that because it just seemed to me that, you know, people in deprived areas have got so many health problems and the health service isn't always at its best where it needs to be. So so I, I kind of got drawn in that direction. It's really common, isn't it, for people to take a slightly circuitous route until they find out what it is in medicine or in general practice really interests them. And that's one of the things I wanted to share in this podcast, just showing people and um, there's opportunities to explore different things that interest them. It's interesting you mentioned deprivation. One of the classic papers, of course, you were involved in was the paper in The Lancet, which documented the extremely high burden of multimorbidity in deprived areas in Scotland. One of the things I think is interesting about that is I wonder if to GPs working in the grassroots the findings in the paper were probably just showing something they already knew, but nevertheless, it had a huge impact. Was that something you thought at the time um, that would have that level of impact? So it's, it's by far my most successful publication. 
It's been cited 3,000 times. It's a citation classic. It's in every policy document around the world. Just about. It's the simplest paper I'd ever done. Just in case anyone doesn't know, could you just give us a brief sort of one-sentence summary of what the findings actually were? So, I mean, essentially, it was, it's looking at the epidemiology, the prevalence of multimorbidity in Scotland. We use GP electronic records, so it was a big data set of about 1.75 million people. It was nationally representative of, of the Scottish population, and it was a very s- simple descriptive study just showing how common multimorbidity is in Scotland, and then how that varies by deprivation. Uh, I mean, we divided Scotland up into 10 groups and 10 10 deciles of deprivation. And between the most deprived and least deprived, uh, there's a 10 to 15 year gap. So people in deprived areas develop multimorbidity 10 to 15 years earlier than people in affluent areas. And therefore, multimorbidity has a big impact on health inequalities. And and it was it was a straightforward paper. It was very descriptive with very little fancy stats. Yeah, it had that big impact. And I think actually, your academic stuff doesn't always have to be clever. GPs. I mean, interestingly, the response from GPs. I've had this for all of my work, really, which tends to be very much based in you know frontline GP type type stuff. GPs loved it because they, they, they said things like, "At last, some some academics are doing research." That is our patients. This totally make this is totally what we've been banging on about for years. So although it was it was actually dead simple, the impact then was big, and it, it encouraged the front line of of you know deep end GPs as we call them that actually somebody had their back and somebody was doing the sort of stuff that had kind of been ignored for in in the more in more academic circles, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of really focused the attention on a very important problem, which it seems like from what you're saying, the GPs who were working in these areas, they knew was there. They knew they were seeing patients in their 50s and 60s with multiple chronic diseases. But once you get somebody who kind of writes that up in a in an academic format, then that's how you get policymakers, I guess, to hopefully pay some attention do you think academic primary care has a responsibility to advocate for, for primary care in that way? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't think every GP who does research needs to focus on deprivation. It's a broad church and, you know, we cover we cover everything in general practice. So, of course, we need research across all sorts of different areas. So I wouldn't say, like, yeah, it has to be the key focus for everyone, but it, it should be a major focus for some people at least, and there should be funding to help support that because it's quite difficult often to get funding for this type of research. And, you know, we know we've, we've had an inverse care law, uh, you know, first described by Julian Tudor Hart half a century ago, and it hasn't changed. Um, and partly, um, part of that, I think, is lack, has been lack of data. So the Lancet paper hasn't necessarily changed deprivation it has it has had a policy impact, um, and, and other people's work as well. It's not just a, that single paper, and partly because it also you publish in a big journal like the Lancet, you get a lot of media attention, and therefore it's up there in highlights and it's on the telly and stuff, and politicians find that hard to ignore. Absolutely, and then I think going on from that, 
you did some studies which were looking at the effect of empathy and patient enablement in primary care in deprived areas as well, which I think is really interesting because that's one of the things that we know can be really helpful for people in deprived areas, but also that can be most difficult as well. Did they, do you think the work from them was something that GPs still use in their day-to-day practice or that would have changed practice ongoing? Again, it was a very kind of similar response that the GPs were, were sort of delighted that somebody was doing this. So I had a, a kind of series of papers published in Annals of Family Medicine um, uh, mainly, where we just described how the inverse care law actually operates. So the inverse care law is, you know, the availability of of, of good medical care varies inversely with the need for the in the population served. And in the NHS in, in the UK, that means patients living in deprived areas who have got more multi-mobility, more social problems, more mental and physical problems, don't get the best out of the NHS. That That's not the fault of the doctors or the GPs or the whoever. It's the way that GPs and, and primary care is distributed uh, throughout the NHS. And it's never been matched to need. It's, it's largely matched to, to headcount. So that means, so I mean, we knew that, but what we didn't know exactly what that meant for patients and GPs. So what we found in my initial study of 3,000 consultations, so the patients in the deprived areas had shorter consultations, they had more complex problems, they uh, came out feeling not enabled or empowered compared with similar patients in affluent areas. But the other important finding is that um, we measured GP stress in every consultation. And in the deprived areas, GPs had much higher stress levels. So it's 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 that's the deep end. It's not the patients are struggling, the GPs are struggling. And then we went on to show, well, I mean, people had been, people were sort of saying, well, that's all, that's all very well. We sort of, you know, we kind of knew that. But what difference does it make? Because healthcare won't make a difference to pe- people in deprived areas. It's all social determinants. So, so we then went on to, to look at, what would happen if you tried to turn the inverse care law upside down? So we we did a cluster randomized control trial where we gave GPs funding so they could provide much longer consultations with targeted multimorbid patients. And we supported the GPs in sort of training sessions and support sessions because it, it, you know, it wasn't easy going, uh, based around a kind of model of empathy that I'd developed. And we also gave them some self-management support materials they could pass on to patients. So it was a complex intervention. You know, general practice is complex. And what we found in this um, experimental, you know, an experiment to reduce the inverse care law is that when you change these things, you get better outcomes. So the patients saw the GPs as more empathic, they felt more enabled. And over the course of 12 months, they showed signs of improvements in well-being and quality of life. And it was very, very cost-effective, well below the government's £20,000 cut-off for, for qualies and implementations. So, you know, firstly, it showed that you could do that kind of research in very deprived areas. And secondly, all the signals were that this actually would have an impact if it was rolled out and actually would be cost-effective. And I think it's the only study of its kind, actually. Despite that sort of research, deprived areas are still relatively underfunded um, by governments. And part of the problem is, I 
I think a lot of us feel that if there was more capacity in primary care, that we could practice more realistic medicine, which is kind of a buzzword, do more forward planning, get ahead of more issues and, you know, eventually hopefully stop hospital admissions and reduce costs. But I think that's quite a difficult thing to show. And that's a real challenge. How do you show that something so complex is actually cost effective, which is obviously what you've tried to do with your paper, but as you mentioned... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I should say that there is good research in England on not that kind of detailed intervention, but 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 there's 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 good research showing that during a period when the uh, the government, the Labour government, actually actually invested in general practice in deprived areas over a period of years, I think around two, 2010 or 2009 or so, I can't quite remember. That is published evidence that that, that had an impact. And it reduced health inequalities to some extent. I mean, healthcare is not the answer to health inequalities, but it's part of the solution. So, so we we do sort of know that it it, it works. But to get that kind of data, you really need very good primary care national level data. And in Scotland, we don't have that as yet. So we're hoping that with Spire and so on, we'll we'll, we'll get there. But but I would say Scotland's a bit behind on that. And the other thing is that research changing policy is, is quite a leap so because it's complex. So for policy, you know, to, to really do something about the inverse care lot, they'd have to invest heavily in primary care in deprived areas. That would mean, you know, more GPs, encouraging more GPs and, and other members of the primary care team. And that's, that's, a, that's a political choice, really. There would be a lot of opposition to that, I'm sure, from certain quarters. So you know, I've got some sympathy with politicians that it's not easy. On the other hand, they've had 50 years to do something about it, and they more or less haven't. You know, we have a new contract that's still in Scotland. That The second phase of that is still under negotiation. There may well be ways in which deprived practices can get extra support going forward. We, we don't know about the details, but I, I think that's probably being discussed. So I think there is more political will now perhaps, than in the past. Um, and time will tell. You know, this is a long, it's a long game. But, uh, you know, at, at the moment, we have an NHS that probably contributes to widening health inequalities because of preferential uptake of services, effective services by more affluent areas and people who are educated and know how to work the system. And that's totally against the ethos of the NHS. So it's it's a it should be a level playing field in terms of healthcare need, and actually because healthcare need is so much higher in deprived areas, then to make it level, you have to have more resources going into it. It's not an, it shouldn't be an equal distribution. So, you know that's that's all to all to play for. Yeah, absolutely, and I think in both nations, and um, people are getting more and more aware of the importance of the social determinants of health. Um, and what needs to be done to change them. I think COVID's really shone a spotlight on that as well. The other thing I wanted to ask you about um, was your involvement with the Deep End project, um, because I think that was a project where deprived GPs got together and shared some of their difficulties and got involved in quality improvement, research. Um, and I think it's now, there's now, so it originally started in Glasgow, but I think there's now several other Deep Ends across the UK um, and across the globe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about that and what happened there? Yeah, so the Deep End started 12 years ago, um, and it started through a 
RCGP Scotland Working Group on Health Inequalities, which I co-chaired with John Gillis, who was the chair of the college at the time. And um, so at the first meeting, we had um, various people uh, around the table who had an interest in, in this topic, and including GPs and including academics such as Graham Watt. And, and at the very first meeting, we, we decided that we couldn't, good old boys sitting around a table couldn't tell, couldn't write up a report without involving frontline GPs. So we said, well, let's, let's get them together. Let's have a meeting. And, uh, and the, then the term GPs at the deep end kind of emerged. And because we had to draw a line somewhere, we said, look, let's make it a, the top 100, the, most, the 100 most applied practices in Scotland. There's about 1,000 practices. So the top 10% who's, who have most of the deprived patients Let's do that. It was never Glasgow only. It was it was always Scottish, Scotland wide. But it just so happens about 80% of the most applied practices are in Glasgow um, because deprivation is not equally distributed um, in Scotland. And that kicked it off with a meeting in the Erskine Hotel, partly funded by the government and partly funded by RCGP Scotland. And it was the first time, as far as we know, the first time in the history of the NHS that doctors working in deprived areas had got together in such a way. And it was dynamite. It was very, very positive. Uh, I remember one GP saying, I never thought I'd wear deprivation as a badge of honour. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just great. And that energy has continued. And, and I have to say, largely through the efforts of, of Graham Watt, who was um, professor and head of the department at Glasgow University, Graham was the driving force behind the, keeping it going and building momentum. And it's very much a, a GP advocacy group. I mean, it's not about GPs asking for more for themselves. They ad, they, they're, they're advocating about the needs of their patients. And it's become quite a powerful voice politically. It has representation in lots of committees in, in the Scottish government and so on. But it's not a formal thing. It's, it's very much a kind of ground-up movement. And now there's, there's groups in England, there are three or four groups in England. There's one in Ireland. There's... Uh, several uh, in, there's Australia, there's several different countries. So it's now becoming slowly a kind of international movement, and it's been really in, invigorating, I think, for for GPs and for academics like myself, who, you know, I just spend all my time in the front line, uh, like the deep end GPs. But to be able to work with them and and, and share that enthusiasm is is been a really positive thing, uh, I think, for everyone. Remember reading some of the deep end work as a GPST1 working in one of Edinburgh's relatively deprived areas and finding it a real eye-opener and a different way to look at some of the challenges that I saw going on day-to-day -day where I was working. The information about Deep End is all available. I think you find it if you Google Deep End Glasgow because it's hosted on Glasgow University webpage. But of course, there is international projects as well. So Stuart, sorry, that's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour. I'm trying to keep these podcasts brief because I'm aware I can chat on a bit too much and people probably will get sick of listening. Was there anything else that you wanted to let us know about or you thought it would be useful for people to know um, around sort of GP scholarship and some of what we've discussed, been discussing about health inequalities and deprivation? This, this research hasn't all been about, about me, so it's been a team of people who have worked on this over the years. Uh, including Graham Watt and, and others. And I just want to point out, in, in England, there's been very good research recently done by the Health Foundation, um, by Bex Fisher and colleagues, on the inverse care law in England. So 
If you go to the Health Foundation website, you'll find those papers pretty much showing this, the same thing as we we found in Scotland. So it's a the inverse care law is is a UK phenomenon. It's not well. It's a global. It's not confined to any one country. So um, no, I think uh, that's great, uh, Joe. I would just encourage any young GPs listening. Certainly, think about a, a career where you do some research. It doesn't have to be inside a university. So you can you can be a scholar outside a university for sure. Julian Tudor Hart was. Uh, that's one example. Uh, and also consider working in deprived areas. It, it's it's not easy going, but it's very rewarding. There's such a level of unmet need, and you can really make a difference to people's lives. Absolutely. And as GPs, we're also in a position to do something about the inverse care law as well. Obviously, we can't change it on our own, but with support from politicians and researchers, hopefully we can start to make a difference. In terms of the research, it can be difficult to know where to get started. And that's part of what YSGP is about. So if you are listening, do have a look at the website. We have some links and blogs, which hopefully would help you to start thinking about how to use GP scholarship and research in your primary care career. Stuart, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. If anyone has any feedback on the podcast or would like to get in touch or be a guest and tell us about your GP scholarship, then please get in touch via wisegp.co.uk or Twitter at wisegp. Thank you so much.